HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If your restaurant wants to put the best on the table, look for food with the New York State Certified Seal. It's food that is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. And welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today, I'm very excited, um, Ron Silver of Bubbies. And you walked into the studio and you said to me, we haven't met, but we've met in a spiritual way. That is true. <laughs> Explain to me what you mean by that. Well, uh, my partner a few years ago had a bumper, bumper crop of wild apples totally luck of the draw and we probably had like a thousand pounds thousand pounds of apples it turned into i don't know it was probably 400 gallons of juice and we were trying to figure out how to make vinegar and i believe our mutual friend will shear mm-hmm. perhaps uh introduced us and then I mean, not us, my partner, and you got together and you brought over your, your cider vinegar mother and basically mothered our, our juice into into vinegar like a saint. Yeah, no, I feel like I nurtured that for a long time. Oh, my God. It was above and beyond yeah. 100%. But at the same time, I felt like I've met you spiritually years before that. Um, and I'm going right to Bubby's. Oh. And, and talking about what it's meant to me and what it's meant to New York. You know, oh. tw- 25 years ago, you started this kind of American diner, but with farm to table ethics. What else was in New York of that ilk at that time? Well, nothing. I mean, I, I would say it is sort of an anomaly. I. I I'm, you know, I'm on my way to Portland right now, and in, in, in after this show, and when I and I've been spending time out in Portland recently um, because oh. I'm just launching this cannabis business. We are whatever gonna, we are, not whatever but we are going to talk about. We, that. we can talk about <laughs> it. But what I'm saying is that when when you go and eat in Portland or you know on the West Coast in general, there are many many more things like Bubby's out there. Uh, not exactly Bubby's, but people have sourdough pancakes, and it's sort of 
Uh, I don't know. There, but in New York at the time that we opened Bubby's, there was really nothing like that. And I, I was really just pulling it out of my sort of imagination of what I thought a restaurant yeah. should be. But sourdough pancakes were a carryover from your childhood. That's right. I, I, we used to eat sourdough pancakes when I was a kid every weekend. Yeah. Growing up in Salt Lake City, is, y- is, yes. that, is that you know native of there or was it just a familiar thing to you? Uh, it was, my mother was very, my mother was from Brooklyn and we were in, you know, we ended up in Salt Lake City uh, and she was pretty adventurous about cooking. Uh, you know, I remember these Time Life cookbooks and uh, in fact, MFK Fisher wrote a whole bunch of those books. I never, I didn't know that until the last few years, but my mother would really sort of adventure out and I, I think that she just started some sourdough that she got from San Francisco, and, you know, that's how it came to our house. Raspberries in the backyard. I mean, were you surrounded by this pastoral life? Yes. I mean, at the t- it, what it really was was the, the sort of buttressing up of, of suburban development to, of you know, just recently passing agricultural uh, world and, and literally in my backyard was a field, and you know there were just any number of things growing at different times of the year, and there were still still little farms around, and there were little orchards of apples and cornfields, and you know really, uh, you know there were plenty of agricultural things going on in the suburb as it sort of as the suburbs push that stuff out of the way. Yeah, and you know I always find it so funny that someone that comes from that background wants to come to New York to learn about food. You know, a, a metropolis that is, is, is so far away from those vistas. You know, I don't, I don't think I came to learn about food. I did <laughs> not come to New York to learn about food. Uh, although I was very excited when I got here that there were, you know, Jonathan Waxman and Ann Rosenzweig and all these chefs that I very much looked up to. I, I mean, first of all, I came to New York to, to be the chef of, some, of this catering company. Um, which was a very fancy job for, a, I mean, I was 25 and cooking like at the Guggenheim Museum at the Temple of Dendur for 1,100 people and stuff. Um, but inevitably and quickly, I became very much unemployable. Uh, <laughs> Should I ask why or that, that will just, that's the punchline? Uh, no, it's not a punchline. I mean, it, it really is a, that... I was a bit precocious uh, as a cook in a, in a certain way, and, uh, you know, as a lot of precocious little pricks who are 25 think that they're just, you know, don't want to work for somebody who they're better than. And, uh, you know, really by the time I was 28 years old or 27, um, I, I, I was very much, it was the 80s, I was very much sick of making, you know, tornade carrots and shit. Uh, you know, brunoises. I mean, half of my life was making really stupid garnishes. And what I really wanted to do is cook, you know, meatloaf and fried chicken and pancakes. And, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, I was just forced to play my hand in a certain way. I mean, I started Bubby's as a pie company, um, which is basically the root of Bubby's pie. I mean, let's talk about those hands and things that you've made by hand. And pie being that you know singular thing that started the company. What 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 was it about working by hand that that made you feel better than 
feeling mechanized and turning carrots? Well, I think that I, I mean, first of all, growing up in Salt Lake City, you know, with my mother being very adventurous with cooking and, and the, the sort of very white girls across the street cooking like, you know, having pork chops and, and uh, Campbell's mushroom soup gravy. I really relished the gravy on the pork chops. That's, that's what I was sort of lusting after in a way. Um, I, I got off track. Tell me the question. Again. No, I mean, I, I, I got soaked into that gravy on top of pork chops so much that, yeah. that I almost forgot what we were talking about because Sorry. you paint this picture. And I'm not alluding to your painterly life, but you paint this picture of Americana that, you know, you somehow transported into the least likely place you'd expected in New York. Yeah, well, I I mean, that's true. Um, You know, Jimmy Rogers died in New York, the the yodeling brakeman. Oh, yeah. You would never imagine that that would be true. And he died at a very, you know, 36, but he was up here recording his brains out and... uh, I think the the moment that I flew into New York City as an adult, which is like August 5th, 1987, and it was the most perfect blue sky day that you have ever seen, and the steel glint of the city, and the the guy next to me, I, you know, I was like, just point out a couple places down there that I could go, and he's like rolling his eyes, and you know, he's like, you'll figure it out, and I, and I really, I... From that moment, I've never felt at home anywhere else besides New York City. And I find New York City to be just a whole bunch of small-town people, you know, that that have landed here because they don't really fit in where they are. I still love where I come from. Let's talk about that first meal you ate when you landed in New York. You know, most people think of it as this kind of illuminating experience. And I know for me, I think it was maybe egg and cheese on a roll or maybe a hard roll with butter. But did did you go to a local diner and, and kind of nourish yourself that way? Well, I mean, my first meal in New York City was uh, was at the Cafe Luxembourg. I remember it very, very well. And it was busy and things were clinking and every girl had cat eye glasses and, you know, black hair and wearing black. And it was all very 1980s and... Uh, and, uh, you know, I love, loved Cafe Luxembourg. And, you know, I'm a big fan of, of uh, Keith McNally restaurants anyway. He really does an amazing job. But to have that be my first experience in New York, I thought it was illuminating. And I loved it. It was great. Um, I think the first, like, sort of soul foodie food that I had was probably at the Pink Teacup, uh, which is now Bouvette. Uh, and... I also used to live in Harlem, so I would eat at Sylvia's for breakfast every single day. I mean, let's talk about Sylvia's spread right now. Uh-huh. What What is your ideal order? At Sylvia's? Well, I would, I, I would just order eggs and grits and stuff like that. And then I guess for dinner, I, I used to eat dinner there as well. And what I really remember right now off the top of my head are canned collard greens and sweet potatoes. Which are also out of a can. I love that stuff. Yeah. I mean, so you started Bubby's, again, as a pie company with yep. $10,000 in two days of planning. That's right. And now you're 25 years in. Yeah. Still making some of the best fried chicken in the city. Some oh, of the best pies you. in the city. Thank you. And, and, and serving those, you know, similar staples 
you know, breakfast all day. Yeah. But comfort all the time. Yes. How does that feel? Awesome. It's it's the it first of all it feels like um I'm offering to you know Bubby's is a sort of sanctuary in an, in in whatever community it's in. Uh or that's my intention and uh you know it's the kind of place I I feel it's the kind of place that a lot of people can come and it reminds them of their hometown whether you're a sort of famous or whether you're famous and about to be busted tomorrow for being sleeping with hookers, which has happened to <laughs> one of our governors, uh, or whether you're, you know, like an up and coming possible mayoral candidate and you've been sending naughty pictures to people on the Twitter, all those people can feel comfortable at Bubby's the day before their little incident and the day after. Nobody bothers anybody there. So if you want to be a Gossam columnist, stop by the bar. Well, no. Uh, because we really there isn't a lot of gossip going on. I mean, I've I've literally been offered fifty thousand dollars to talk about what some famous couple on their first date happened to be at Bubby's ate, and I really, I mean, it, it's clear that you don't get that from us, really. Yeah. So Bubby's is a safe place. Bubby's is a very safe place. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about a safe food pie. Sounds good. New York chefs and restaurants are proud of the food they put on the table. And serving produce that comes from local, environmentally responsible farms is a way to leave an even better taste in everyone's mouth. So when shopping for your ingredients, look for the New York State Grown and Certified Seal. It lets you know which food is grown right, right here in New York State, certifying the food that comes from local farms that meet a higher standard. You'll not only be serving local food, you'll be supporting local farmers. Learn more about the New York State Grown and Certified Program at certified.ny.gov. And welcome back to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell, here with Ron Silver of Bubbies. And it's Bubbies around the world, too. Um, Japan. Yes. Like four locations in Tokyo, one outside. Yep, Yokohama. Uh, where else in the world does Bubbies exist or has existed? Well, we had a a restaurant in Brooklyn and that's about it. Yeah. Yes. Brooklyn and Bubby's is not a worldwide uh, the, the whole Japan thing is just a wild accident in a way. Yeah. But but great. But I want to talk about your worldliness um because I read this amazing article uh in the New York Times about how Havana changed you as a person. Oh. <laughs> you say that kind of bashfully that you may not want to talk about it but what, what was so fascinating about it is is your willingness to explore and be influenced by other artists and other cultures um uh-huh. and you know i was gonna ask this very funny question uh, about huevos rancheros well not funny but i was going to point out that you know you have huevos rancheros on your menu now yes and you know that is ethnic cuisine in a sense yeah but then I was sent your original menu as well from 1990. Uh-huh. And what's on there? Huevos Rancheros. Is that right? Yeah. I'm and, glad to hear and that. And I just thought it was so amazing that, you know, the world has, yes, affected you in this, in this wonderful way. But 
you know, you really haven't deterred from what you started in 1990. Well, you know, it's a, it's, it's an interesting thing about that. Um, I, you know, I, I, I've been at this for 25 years and it's, it's, uh, it's, that is a long time to be at something. And recently I, I tried to bring in some sort of management help and, you know, the, these guys assured me that I had no idea what the fuck I was doing and that I should get out of the way um, and let them just take the ball and run with it since it's a modern world and I'm old and practically almost dead and they're young and they know exactly what's going on. And they really did manage to just botch things up seriously. Uh, And in a way that I was very uncomfortable with for, for quite a long time until I just, you know, had to pull the plug on that. Uh, And in doing that, I was sort of, you know, uh, there was, it was like weightlessness for a minute. I had no anchor and I was, my, uh, my family and I moved in January and we were, uh, you know, packing up a bunch of stuff and there were boxes. Should we take them? Should we not? I started opening them up and I found our original menu and, and it, it was like my 25 year or well, how old 27, 28 year old self, my 28 year old self telling the, my 53 year old self what a, what an absolute pussy I am. And, you know, it was an epiphany and, you know, we, it really did help to just drive things back to, to the beginning and also realize where it had drifted and how it hadn't drifted a whole bunch. You know, there's absolutely a core there that was, has been there forever. Yeah. Well, I love that you have this sounding board. Uh, you, you have almost, it's non-living, but you have people like James Beard. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and his pancakes on the menu. But you have people like him that are, in a sense, your North Star. hundred percent. Even more than that. I mean, I, I have this sort of, uh, call it superstition slash hallucination that I talk to dead people all the time. And I consider James Beard one of, one of my dearest friends. And Plato and, you know, Abraham Lincoln. So, you know, at some point they'll lock me up. <laughs> Or uh, it's going to be the best goddamn party ever, and I want an invite. Well, if I do get locked up, I hope they throw me in the kitchen. Yeah. (laughs) No no sharp knives. Uh, You know, with those people surrounding you metaphysically or not, um, you also surround yourself by great art and great artists. Uh, You yourself, one of them, hanging your images on the walls. And I want to talk about the influence of what, you know, that visual um, world means to you? Well, I think that really gets back to coming to New York City. And in a, in a way, New York City has given me every single thing that I have. And, you know, one of, the, one of those things, I, I used to be a chef, you know, just coincidentally, a, a half a block from where Bubby's is in the High Line now. And I lived in Harlem, as I said, so I would ride my bicycle back and forth all year. And for probably a whole year, I rode past the Metropolitan Museum and I was thinking, that is a pretty nice building. I wonder what is in there. And one day, I, I just pulled my bike over and locked it up and went inside and walked through the Greek and Roman galleries and the Papua New Guinea sort of thing. And then I walked into the Lila Atchison wing and saw these three Chile paintings, and and it was like 
just being hit in the head with a two by four. I just had no idea that anything existed like that. Yeah. And after that, I went to the Met every single day for two years. And, and it really, uh, it really, except for Mondays, um, it really gave me everything, I, I guess. Uh, and since then, I have had, you know, very good friends who are artists. And, uh, you know, I, I travel a lot. And I don't know. I, 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 I feel that, especially that Shale moment, but many artists, uh, you know, have, have just sunk into my, my being in a way. Yeah, and it, it's Egon or Egon Shale. Yes. Who... Um what is an Austrian painter Austrian student of Klimt and you know that that comes young. from Freudian you know land yeah and uh, I mean suppose so it, it's it's really interesting because those images are you know figurative but a little otherworldly too yes impressionistic I yeah yes do you feel like that's your restaurant as well <sighs> do you feel like it's an impressionistic version of what a diner or well, Americana I th- should be. I think that in a way it is uh, sort of a patchwork quilt because I've never done anything with a complete plan. And so everything sort of just gets pieced together in some sort of way and either it matches or you eventually get used to it and feel that it does match. So, you know, it may or may not, but, uh, you know, it, it's very hodgepodgey. Yeah. I mean, then how does your newest business venture fit into this larger quilt that you created? Well, first of all, um, you know, I've been smoking weed since I was a baby. They probably put it in my bottle, <laughs> my guess. But I, I really have been using cannabis since I was 13 or 12 and really getting in trouble for it just all the time, explaining myself away, you know, getting yelled at, sort of apologizing and not meaning it, you know, like sneaking around in basements and all kinds of things like that. And, you know, I think inevitably the, the two, the, my culinary background and, uh, and my love for cannabis has enabled me to think about weed in a sort of sane way, uh, more than the sort of giddy stoner uh thing that is prevalent in the cannabis business uh and i think that i i entering into the entering into this weed business i think is is interesting because i'm you know i'm not young uh but and i i have a lot of experience with a pretty hard business uh, being, you know, the restaurant business has got a million moving parts and it, it is difficult. Um, the cannabis business is, is populated by people who really don't want to get off the couch. <laughs> uh, and then it's also populated with people who have, you know, like bankers with a ton of money who are seeing this as the next gold rush and they want in, but they have to deal with people who can't get off the couch. So one of the things well, the thing that I ha- the main thing that I uh, have developed is this uh, fast-acting cannabis sweeteners. Uh, so we have sugar, uh, maple sugar, coconut sugar, date sugar, stevia, agave, um, but they're all infused with cannabis and treated in a way that makes them fast-acting. So we've really addressed 
the number one problem in the cannabis edibles business, which is nobody knows what they're going to get. And there is sincere fear uh, every time you're going to eat some new edible and any that's a seasoned expert or whatever that lady's name, Peggy Noonan or whoever OD'd on a a chocolate bar. Um, I don't think it was Peggy Noonan. So don't, (laughs) don't sue me, Peggy Noonan. Uh, But the, the, the thing that I am trying to offer with, with, with all the products that I'm making is a, I want to make ingredients that people can experiment and make other things with and something that they know exactly what they're going to get. So I'm putting a a measured amount of 10 milligrams in a teaspoon. So you can put a teaspoon in your coffee or a teaspoon per brownie that you're going to make. And you know exactly what you're going to get. And it kicks in in 15 to 20 minutes as opposed to one to four hours. So it gives a, it gives a, a measured controllable experience. And I think that what that really does, of course, there's the, the recreational aspect of it, but that is a small percentage compared to the actual, and I'm all for recreational use. Uh, but for example, let's just say you break your leg really bad and you're in the hospital and they ask you what your level of pain is and they do that. And you know, if it's me and I've got a, a dripper in my arm, I'm, I'm always going to say a 10 because I love <laughs> I love the feeling of Dilaudid dripping into my arm. And I've had it a bunch because I've been injured a lot. Uh, but there is a serious problem in this country with opioids. And if people have the choice to have, you know, four Motrins and a, a 20 milligrams of cannabis that is a much better option than trying to have a 10 in pain. And the whole pain management business is uh, up against the ropes at the moment. So they want an option. Yeah, you know, it's funny because you talk about these products and we haven't even touched on soda pot. Um, Uh You know, it it seems more like it's from the apothecary, that, you know, old school uh, American soda fountain, which were more about medicinals than they were about, you know, um, satisfying any kind of hunger or. I mean, back then there were, you know, you could walk into the, if, if you were having say something as, as serious as menstrual cramps, they give you laudanum for that. And there, you know, they didn't, they didn't really have the kind of regulation over these things that they, they had. But because of that, there were plenty of things that had, cannabis opium and cocaine and you could just go in and buy that and i don't know at the same place i think you could have a a egg cream and and a pretzel stick absolutely that's exactly right so and you could probably have you know an opium cocaine weed egg cream probably yeah (laughs) Uh, that's not on the menu at bubby's that is not on the menu anywhere yeah (laughs) but you know i think that the you know, the the hiatus that the world has taken from cannabis just because of one asshole, Harry J. Anslinger, who is a racist idiot. But basically, the entire world illegalized marijuana with all the culture that, you know, thousands of years of Moroccans, Lebanese, Afghanis, and everybody had their cannabis culture. And it was very much used for very many things. It wasn't like people were sitting around playing Nintendo in 1560 just smoking bong hits all day i mean this was an actual medicine and i still think of it as a medicine and 
I, I guess this sort of hiatus that the world has taken and the amount of technology and the way that people think about things. I mean, cannabis, cannabis is about to exceed anything that Michael Pollan ever sort of wrote about in, in that book, whatever that book was. Well, at the same time, he said, don't eat anything that your, what, grandparents would eat? Yeah, that's a different book. Yeah. This, <laughs> this you know, this is about how tulips thrived or how marijuana or potatoes did, did you read that no, i can't remember no. what it was but it was just talking about who's dominating who it's like these plants totally taking advantage of of people to you know spread them throughout the world and cannabis is about to really dominate in that picture yeah it's an amazing plant so you know and it's fascinating talking about you know this industry uh relevant innovations your business and you know i think of it as simply as you know what if we didn't have pie like what if this world didn't you know get to enjoy that because somebody said no pie yeah um, and i'm not i wouldn't be surprised if somebody didn't say that yeah but it, it's almost as benign uh, um you know a ban as that um you know well, yes, but it was straight up, you know, geared towards Mexican and black, Mexicans and black people because that's really a, a lot of the users were, you know, farmhands and jazz musicians. I guess that, that was the most public target. I don't really understand how the guy got away with it. Yeah, and at the same time, I mean, I, I'm I'm not going into the race discussion too much, but having lived in Harlem and gone to jazz clubs and Sylvia out there. Uh, that food community, and then you know a lot of kitchen staff by Latin Americans. I mean, you're you're attacking the backbone of the culinary industry um, by you know taking that away. Not not to bring those two worlds together, or not taking it away, but making it illegal. Yeah, and making criminals out of all these people who are you know perfectly hardworking, beautiful people who would rather not drink liquor, probably. Yeah, uh, you know this this is a fascinating discussion. I, I really. Hope someone else on Heritage Radio can have you on again and, and kind of further expand because, you know, edibles, um, like you said, yeah, recreational, do have another side to them. Um, pain management, but also, you know, psychiatrics. And there, there's so much PTSD more. PTSD seizures for yeah. children. I mean, you see these little children getting this oil shot down their throat and you're just like, yay, they're not going to have seizures. But that stuff really tastes bad. And if you, you know, there's a whole song about it. a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. And, and you know, if if you, if a, a little child can have two teaspoons of CBD sugar and they're not having seizures, I mean, it, it's a lot more pleasant than than the the current the current choice that's barely available to them anyway. Yeah, and I feel like it's discussion that people should go to Bubby's and have with each other while enjoying the food that you serve, because this is... We'll all be welcome. This is everybody. You know, this isn't distinctly uh, one community versus another. Um, this should be a discussion, an open forum for everyone to to really talk about. Well, the thing that's nice about the cannabis business is that it is open to everyone. It, you know, it's there's no glass ceiling in the cannabis business. There's no racial profiling in the cannabis world. Everybody's welcome, and there are plenty of things to innovate, and there are plenty of things to do, plenty of services to offer, and, and it's a real opportunity that is not just right now driven by pharmaceutical companies or rich bankers. It's a huge opportunity for people. Well, be it 
if you want caffeinated cannabis, coconut oil, your your fat brain <laughs> product, or just a nice slice of pie uh, to ruminate well, over you everything can't we buy just fat talked brain about. At Bubby's. No, no, but <laughs> you can go to Oregon and maybe find it there. Yes. Um, you know, stop by Bubby's, see Ron, and you know, be part of this larger discussion. Yes, always do that. And that's what we try to do here at Heritage. This is an awesome show. <laughs> Thank you, man. You've been listening to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.